Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Ultimately, and this is sort of the utopian vision of, of Marx and Engels to some extent, ultimately, we want to have a society where you don't need legal contracts for anything. In fact, they say the only reason we're forcing you to have a legal marriage, one that's you know sort of as a stamp of approval from the state, is just to ensure that you don't go marry in the church. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation that will focus on family and on family policy, topics that are clearly central to our mission. And I will do it today with a very young woman, a recent mother and a scholar, Dr. Clara Piano. Good morning, Clara. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. I said Clara, but it's Clara, right? Either works. Okay. I prefer the Italian pronunciation. You do? Oh, so, yeah. I'm on The way to my heart. <laughs> it, will, it will be very easy for me to, to do that. So I said very young and you really are, especially if one considers that you are already a, an assistant professor of economics at PE State University and have published several peer-reviewed papers on many topics, including mental health and marriage, Renaissance art contracts, the organization of Christian seminaries, and the Soviet family policy. Now, do you feel old or young? I mean, were you expecting to accomplish so much so early? Especially, I think, you know, as, as women, we know that that might be hard. Thank you for that question. I'm flattered. I do feel old when I'm in the classroom just because I teach college students and things move so quickly there. So it's always sort of been like, you know, you have to have confidence and you have to sort of know, know your stuff. And so I definitely enjoy that aspect. But from another perspective, I did plan intentionally to go to grad school early because I did want to have a family. So I wanted to graduate as soon as possible so I could have more stability um, and also an income in order to start having children or, or getting married and things like that. And I was fortunate that that's how it played out. And I think uh, when I advise young girls and college young women, I say it's totally okay if that's one of your goals, having a family, you know, factor that into your career path and, and, and the timelines and things like that. So that wasn't an intentional thing on my part, but wow. yes, I... Yeah, no, you anticipated my question because I was just like, what would you recommend young students listening if they wanted? Because yeah, I didn't mention it, but you're also now, you know, you're married and you're, you're recently, you had your first daughter, right? Yes, she's three months, Maria Laura. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, you anticipated me by, you know, suggesting that this is all possible. Correct me if I'm wrong here about your bio. You got your PhD in economics at George Mason and your bachelor's degree at Creighton University. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. yes. And what was the best part of your education and or the worst part? Oh, uh, so... I really enjoyed going to uh, a Jesuit school for my undergraduate experience. They emphasize uh, service learning there, which is a little bit different than a lot of other experiences you might have in college in the United States. So sometimes it's seen as a time to party. At Creighton, it's seen as a time to give back to the community and to find your vocation. So that was a big part of um, what, my- If I may, what is service learning? Service learning. So it's the idea that at every point, you're never too young to, to start sort of using your skills for the greater good. So the Jesuits emphasize things like seeing God in all things, 
sort of walking with our neighbors. So for example, I spent a semester in the Dominican Republic learning about the culture there. That was my study abroad and then also teaching English in a school. So, um, which I was not good at. I'm not saying I actually, you know, added a lot of value. It was definitely bi-directional. But the idea there is that we're not just here to party. (laughs) So it really gives you a lot more dignity, I think, and responsibility as a college student. And I was grateful for that because I think it helped me uh, grow up uh, sort of in the right direction, right? And not regress into following my own whims, but really thinking honestly about how I wanted to pursue a vocation. Did you see it also in your peers? Because, you know, there's this one thing that some people take, make the most of whatever school they're in. But I think that then the measure to way to measure school is to say, okay, but how did your peers do? Like, so is that something that you you've seen revealed also in your peers life, the people that attended with you, that they did learn this? Yeah, no, that's a really good point, basically about culture. So I would say that the culture at Creighton is healthy for this reason. There is a Jesuit presence on campus, so you're sort of reminded of the things of God. Just like a a lot of universities might have roots in, in churches and religious organizations, but have moved away from that, Creighton a little bit less so. It's, it's, there's the parish at the heart of campus. And I had Jesuits teach some of my, uh, philosophy classes, theology classes. But in general, there's also a culture where it's cool to volunteer. It's cool, you know, to serve others. It's not cool to be a mess, you know, just to roll into class in, in sweatpants and not really, you know, thinking, I'm, of course, people wear sweatpants, you know, but there's a sort of culture of I'm not here to learn uh, that I think can be pervasive on certain college campuses. And instead at Creighton, people were there to pursue an education. And that, you know, that's a variety of of factors, the Jesuit influence. It could also just be sort of the socioeconomic backgrounds of some of the students, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking about working hard. I was in the business school. That also helps if you have an internship and you have to be somewhere at a certain time and perform and already be thinking about your, that job that, that you'd like to have out of college. So I think there are a lot of factors, but in general, it was a uniquely healthy culture. So I'm very grateful for that. When you're a college student, a lot is up for grabs because you're away from home. And so you, you're you easily swayed by culture. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners are college students. So I think that what you're saying is extremely important. And because I don't want you to burn bridges, I'm not going to repeat the question of what was the worst part of your education. Oh. I'm sure there are things to mention, but we'll just, we'll just leave it there. Now, I also want to tell our audience that you're going to be our guest this spring. We're settling, you know, we're still deciding the exact date, but you're going to come and talk in person with uh, for a talk that we're going to co-sponsor with the Salem Center at UT. So for those who don't want to miss you in person, they should register to our newsletter so that you know when this is coming as soon as it's, uh, as soon as it's out on our website. Now, since family policy is largely your expertise, I know that there, you know, there's a lot that you could say still about the choices of young students that are listening again with respect to marriage. But today I had invited you to speak uh, more specifically about a topic that you analyzed in one of your papers titled Autocratic Family Policy. And in that paper, you analyzed the way in which the regime, since an autocratic system is a system where power is held only by one person, deals with family. And I am pretty sure that the reason why we at Yasin Institute find this topic interesting will be sort of self-evident as we go through, as if we go through your paper. But let me start with the basics. So what was the question animating your research when, you know, the one that you tried to answer when you decided to write this paper? Yes. Yeah, so I started with a historical puzzle, which is called the Soviet Family Policy Reversal or Somersault, as some um, historians have, have called it. And essentially, 
it starts out very Marxist and, and very much drawing from the writings of Engels, actually, and very much against the family, trying to tear down families, trying to replace the family with the commune, the society, more broadly, the state. Um, and then all of a sudden, in less than a generation, you find Soviet family policy is actually very pro-family, very much trying to support childbearing and, and rearing, trying to start building up the, the family unit again. And so I ask why this is, what can explain this puzzle of Soviet family policy. And I use a lot of economic theories of autocratic regimes and also of family economics uh, to do so. And then before we go into the details of that, was the answer, as you wrote your paper, like, was the answer the one that you expected or? I mean, I definitely learned a lot. So I think it's so important to read deeply into history. I had to first study exactly what the Soviet family policies were to, to study more Marxist thought behind why the family is so dangerous really to um, Marxist ideology. And I had a suspicion that I, I would find that they had to reverse policy because society doesn't function without families. I sort of had that intuition going in is that you really can't do without the family unit for very long. We don't find any successful societies thriving without family units. So that was definitely, I think, uh, sort of just an environmental constraint on, on the behavior of the autocrat. But I definitely learned how this played out in the Soviet context. So it was interesting to see how there were uh, just armies of orphans in, in a short number of years, or really the, the destitution of women after these anti-family policies took place. So reading those uh, even firsthand accounts sometimes was very moving and, and helped me with the intuition that, you know, the autocrat is doing what's in his interest and it wasn't necessarily for the women and children, you know, as they often try to sell these. And I, and I think that that is a very interesting take, you know, on why pro-family policies start appearing at some point in the Soviet Union. But let me start from where something you said at the beginning, which might be of interest of the students, you know, learning about Marxism and maybe being interested in understanding more what it is. You said, you know, of course, Marxism needed to do away with the family. So why is that? Of course, you know, what, what's yeah. the reason for that? So it's a very, very central and, and really underlying theme in the writings of Marx, but especially Engels. Engels uh, writes a lot about this. And the idea is that we need to, to liberate individuals, especially women, they usually will, will point out from the oppression of family structures. So they saw it as sort of bourgeois. Um, they saw it as very traditionalist and certainly a bastion of religion, which is another thing that they're very much against. Soviet ideology is explicitly anti-religion, anti-God. And so in order to get rid of religion, you really do have to get rid of the family. And also in order to get rid of private property, you have to get rid of the family. So private property is what allows families to flourish. It's, it gives families um, control over their own destinies, control over their homes, quite literally. And so it's very essential, this private property and religion connection meeting in the family. And if you're able to break that apart, then all of a sudden you can start to control individuals a little bit better. There's not these influences of the market, right? And the church. So what I learned by reading um, Marx and Engels was really that they saw the families, the nexus of these two things that, that they really disliked. And so it was interesting, to, you know, to see these ideas try to be played out in Soviet family policy early on, uh, they would ban inheritance or ban adoption. 
or, or certainly banned throughout the whole regime, religious marriage. So the only marriage that was legitimate was that from the state. And if the Russian Orthodox Church said, oh, you were married, that was not legitimate anymore. So the rules that change in the Soviet Union when Marxism needs to be enacted in policy are, first of all, is like the first country allowing for no-fault divorce, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So they institute no-fault divorce extremely early. This is, we're talking 1917 here. And I learned from a talk that I gave that some people are not aware of what no-fault divorce is. You know, mm-hmm. No-fault divorce means just like you don't need adultery or violence or abuse. You don't need a ground to, to get a divorce. So. It's something which, you know, I think, as I mentioned, this this paper becomes interesting as we read through because no-fault divorce, again, is as like was seen in the West as one of those signs of progress and liberation. And then, you know, one discovers that the first country that actually allowed it did it in order to become more influential in politics and, and you know, preventing the family from, from having a role. Because as you write, you know, the... Kids are produced privately and the everyday private activity of the family draws resources and loyalty away from the collective. That's something I, I got from your paper. And then when you, you mentioned that the everyday functioning of family life is an inherent threat to an autocrat because it absorbs some supply of loyalty from his citizen that he wants to enjoy. So they are the first with no fault divorce, but then also with abortion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so um, you're right to say that uh, these policies they're seen as very progressive and and they're very open about what they think that they're going to do. So unilateral divorce is going to free individuals from having to be tied to one another. And then abortion, sort of the same idea. And in some of their debates, they even say it's just going to give us more labor. So now we don't have to worry about women working in the home as much. We have more people to work in the factory. So let's push the women into the factory where they weren't otherwise there. And it's interesting to note, again, I want to emphasize, they did not, so the autocrat, the party, so we're talking about Lenin and Stalin here, but really just the party apparatus, a bunch of individuals acting sort of as a unit. They did not like these policies did to their society in two generations. Birth rates fell, a bunch of other really sort of core outcomes. And so they started to find divorce. They had to publish it in a paper. You had to pay a very high amount. They banned it after three divorces. And same with abortion. So then pretty quickly they said, oh, we actually don't want to allow abortion. And so they changed route pretty quickly on that as well. But for a while, this was seen as extremely progressive and uh, liberating for women, again, was a big theme in in both of these policies. Yeah. and And I mean, this is, you know, they reversed it, but then it was only in the 60s and in the 70s that Western Europe and the United States greeted this, some of this you know, similar changes as the greatest sign of progress. So I don't know if if somehow we could say that there was a lesson there to be learned, which which should not be learned. But another thing that I want, you know, that you talk about this reversing the policy and also why the autocrat does it, but also this other idea that there were no more illegitimate children. Like, could you explain like how it started to work, like with open families, basically? Yes. No. So that's a really great point. So the idea here was ultimately... And this is sort of the utopian vision of of Marx and Engels to some extent. Ultimately, we want to have a society where you don't need legal contracts for anything. In fact, they say the only reason we're forcing you to have a legal marriage, one that's, you know, sort of as a stamp of approval from the state, is just to ensure that you don't go marry in the church. So in order to get the priests out of marriage, we have to just take it over by the state. But eventually the dream is to have it where 
uh, individuals are free to have any relationships that they want whenever. And if you have children, you know, they're not illegitimate. They're not even legitimate. They're just there, you know, and we'll take care of them. The state will take care of them. That, that was sort of the idea, right? This utopian vision. And what ended up happening is that there were children and they knew who their mothers were, obviously, for biological uh, reasons, but the fathers are nowhere to be found. And for a while, the fathers weren't even required to give support. Given the technology back then, it wasn't sure, you know, necessarily who the father was. It could have been multiple, multiple men. And so there was this chaos and a real destitution of women. So you see prostitution on the rise at this time, just again, out of the need to provide for oneself and one's children. You see uh, a lot of starvation and the women especially are upset. They're, they're really, really upset because um, it becomes clear very quickly that the idea of legitimacy had protected women to some extent because it had ensured that there was one man assigned the task of providing for quite literally giving his resources to the children and the women. I do want to actually add in one really fascinating sort of way of looking at this. And this is in the words, this comes from, this is not my own sort of genius. This is from a feminist writer during the Soviet Union. So her name, she goes by E.O. Cabo. And she had studied the, the conditions of working class families in Russia at the time. And she says, it's an odd assumption that Marxists think that the man, the breadwinning figure, usually the man is exploiting the women and children in the household. He's the one in charge, you know, he's keeping them under, you know, taking away their freedom, things like this. She's like, what it looks like instead in these working class families is it's actually more of, you know, the women exploiting the men, the men are earning the income, but the women are using it to provide for children. They're using it to, you know, create the home and everything like this. She was like, it could easily be the reverse, you know, so we're not, we can't say just looking at the family who is exploiting whom. So this idea of legitimacy again, and the family unit as actually protecting women, there's some interesting economic research on this as well as to why the family unit benefits, right? Yeah. Women. I- Again, I don't want to, sorry for interrupting, but like it, this, what you're saying brings us back exactly to today's suburban poor areas of towns where we did away with marriage because we don't need marriage. Like it wasn't a policy prohibiting it, but it was more like the modern mindset of saying, oh, I don't need to get married. You know, we can have relationship and, you know, and have kids out of wedlock. And we know that there is a crisis of, you know, fatherless of a fatherless society of women that need to work three jobs to provide for kids whose father disappeared because, you know, it wasn't their request before, you know, before becoming intimate to say, you know, we should probably legitimize all this. You know, like there, there is a, a weird, as I was reading your paper, there is like this very weird way in which somehow some of the ideas that the autocrat in, in Russia, in, in the Soviet, in the former Soviet Union um, imposed are sort of very similar of things that we naturally went for and chose and maybe awareness of the historical problems that that created, uh, I don't know, maybe would help us. Mm-hmm. No, that is the fascinating point that a lot of our, a lot of the policies that were pushed, just like you said, in the United States in the sixties and the seventies, sometimes with the same arguments, right? This is going to liberate women. This is going to bring about more freedom and more individual just ability to enjoy life and things like that. The lesson that was learned in the Soviet Union was that actually these things sometimes don't have their intended consequences. So economists sort of, we, we love talking about unintended consequences, right? 
it looks like this will benefit women and children, but actually in practice for very economic reasons and, and, and very sort of human reasons even, right? Fertility constraints, the fact that children are more dependent on their mothers and, and, and sort of even vice versa. We get these outcomes in society that are not intended, even from the autocrat's perspective. It's very disruptive, right, to have orphans, huge, huge armies of orphan children who are just plundering, looking for food, looking for anything they can find, right, because they weren't supported. The state just can't possibly fill that role. And what else was I going to say? I had another thought, but I lost it. Um, no, don't worry. We're going to, I'm sure that we're going to go back <laughs> there because I, I still want to, you know, uh, we're jumping from one thing to another. And I understand, but I think it's just so fascinating that, you know, history somehow repeats himself. But again, by learning more, we, we might avoid some, some of the mistakes. And you describe about this in 1922, they have this problem with the homeless orphans. And then there are other problems, you know, these women in disastrous conditions, growing prostitution and declining birth rates that again, are the same things that we're dealing with today in the West. There was also a quote that I found, I don't know what you will think about, you know, what you thought about it when you read it, but I found it scary. And it reminded me, I recently read some evolutionary uh, biology talking about the beginning of school, right? And school is a, something that's completely new to the past century. There, there wasn't school, like it's, it's, a, it's a complete novelty uh, for human beings to have schools. And so there was this quote by Anatoly Lunacharsky, it might be destroying his name, but like in, 18, in light, late 1920s, it was the commissar of education in the Soviet Union. And he, he writes this thing that, quote, our problem now is to do away with the household and to free women from the care of children. And then he says, it would be idiotic to separate children from their parents by force. But when in our communal houses, we will have well-organized quarters for children, there is no doubt that parents will, of their own free will, send their children to those quarters where they will be supervised by trained pedagogical and medical personnel. Now, I'm not saying that, this, I'm definitely not saying that this is what is happening in schools, but you know how, for especially in Europe where homeschooling is absolutely prohibited, so very differently from the United States. I, I must say that there is something strangely comparable to this, this thought. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? No, that is that is so interesting. You're absolutely right that the parallels between Soviet family policy and just the world today are amazing. But yes, so the idea there was that, and I think this is part of the mindset that is in Europe and certainly in America as well, that experts are always better, like experts in a sterile sense and not experts in a, in a deep sense. It's very obvious to me, especially now as a mother, right? that parents know their children the best, right? And so, and from an economic perspective, we would say that they also have the greatest interest in the well-being of their children, right? They, they basically, you have to live with them. So you, you have an incentive not, you know, to create little monsters. You, you really actually want to invest in them and see them thrive and develop. But then there's this idea that like, uh, and this very scientism is, is taking over, you know, is taking over in the Soviet Union. And I think it's still alive today, this bias towards the expert tyranny of experts, it's been called as well, where, well, maybe I don't know a lot about, you know, teaching my child or, or any of these variety of topics. So let's outsource it to an expert. And that's a call that you have to, you know, a decision that you have to make. And what's fascinating there is he says, it's not by force. It's going to be a sort of persuasive, right? We don't need to force families apart. We can just, you know, sort of tell parents, oh, this is what's best for your children. What parent won't do what's best for their child unfortunately, sometimes it's not best. And so I think during COVID, actually, we saw this. A lot of 
parents uh, saw what was going on, what was being taught in schools and decided, oh, actually the school is not best for my child, right? I was told that it would be, I was told maybe it was even something that it was not. And so we saw families making decisions to increase homeschooling, right? To send their children to different schools for these reasons. So it is definitely true that you can have the parental child relationship broken, I think, sometimes by hard force in some cases, like we see in China sort of did this, I think they took this path a little bit more. The Soviet Union certainly did by having uh, children report against their parents. So there's excellent, very sad accounts of where um, family members would turn each other in, right? So their loyalty was above their family to the state. But it can also happen in, in, in softer ways as well. So you can turn, you know, families against each other just by separating them for long periods of time, right? And then telling them different things. So yeah, it's definitely the traditional sort of aspects, services that family members provide for their children and for each other. The Soviet Union just obviously very clearly try to take over all of those, right? Including schooling, including communal kitchens, right? So they even tried to force people to cook meals in public and not in the privacy of their homes. Yeah. And two things they bring to mind immediately is like this thing that, you know, you break the family apart because you want, you want people to be more loyal to the states than to their own family. So if you want people to report the parents for doing something that the regime would not, you need to make sure that those bonds are severed very early on so that, and you'd also reminded me of, I think I've already mentioned it on this podcast, but I'm a fan of Chesterton and the essay that is, uh, the title is Turning Inside Out. It talks about precisely the the care that only parents will have for their children. There will never be a teacher that will have the, the same care because he doesn't follow him throughout his, you know, for his entire life. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, as you, you know, going to the reversal then of the policy, because that's, let's assume we are in the same position now where uh, the Soviet Union was, well, they decide to change the course. So the autocrat there says, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't deal with prostitution, declining birth rates and orphans. Things need to change. So what happens next? Yeah. So I essentially argue, and this is sort of just the economic approach that for self-interested reasons, Stalin is the autocrat in power now. He thought he would be in power for a while. So all of a sudden, he doesn't just have these short-term goals, which is increase labor force productivity right away. So get women into the factory, stop them from raising children, and you know really build the loyalty uh, to the state. Now he's thinking, okay, well, I do need laborers in the future. I do need soldiers in the future. And now that we have declining birth rates, all these policies worked almost too well, right? So we have just this really, truly chaos in society, a lot of social disruption at the time. So let's reverse a lot of these. And now let's just start, let's start paying women to have children. So this idea of heroin mothers, um, you would get a special title. And I think I have like the prices and the rewards and the titles and a table in my paper, but you basically just get more honor and more money. The more children that you have, we're talking about over six um, at this, in this time. And then we also are going to start fining divorce. So there's no free reign of divorce anymore. No unilateral divorce is being enjoyed it really has to be, there are just a lot more strictures put on it. Interestingly, they still do ban religious marriage though. So the one thing that I would argue might've increased family functioning, uh, they still, he still couldn't stomach the idea of the, the church being involved in marriage. That was too risky, too risky for the autocratic regime. But uh, so they changed course and um, it's really 
tragic, actually. A lot of the people who wrote the initial family policies and then were fighting for it in public, persuading right the, the, the Russian people to, to get behind this, they were uh, imprisoned, they were killed, they were put in mental institutes and things like that. All of a sudden, Stalin saying, oh, no, these people are crazy. We actually want to be pro-family. And then they have a lot of propaganda, right? So it's sort of what you would expect from a, an autocratic regime to start trying to um, change people's minds again, right? To, to have the wife stay at home and for the, the man to, to stay married just to one, to one woman and, and things like this. Uh, did it work? No. <laughs> so there is a really interesting asymmetry in family policy that we see play out over and over again. I think we see it in the West today. I think we see it very obviously in autocratic states Again, Soviet Union, China, Singapore is an example. There are a couple of others. And the problem is that policy, the state, is very good at creating the conditions where families can fail. And it's not good at creating conditions where families can thrive. Or it's not good, I should say, actively pursuing family life just by family policy alone. So I think what happened is we see still today falling birth rates in Russia. There's very high mortality for men in particular. There's not necessarily what you would call a stable you know, family life. And, and part of the, the problem is that a lot of these things are hard to encourage with policy. There, there's problems that go a lot deeper than just not being able to afford children, for instance, right? Or now that you know divorce isn't allowed, that doesn't necessarily heal a lot of the mistrust that had been fostered for years in, in the children that were going to the schools, for instance, you know, the idea that you should be able to turn each other in, right, for something that you say against the regime. These things are hard to undo. And so we still see, unfortunately, Russia has a demographic problem today. That brings into something Professor Regneros recently mentioned. Again, it was precisely along the same lines, you know, because we do a lot of talk about pro-family policies. But there is this problem that there is an asymmetry. So it's very easy to, as, as everything probably in life, right? It's very easy to destroy. It's very difficult to build again. But that the, the difficult part of building again probably starts from the culture. So it is the culture that needs to change. And in that sense, I find it extremely relevant to study the history. And so what this, you know, idea of progress of like, oh, okay, let's, you know, get empowered and go to work in a factory, like what this led to, that might be a way for the culture really to change. So simply an awareness of what it really meant and what it really looked like to be in the communal kitchen, right? And not having to share whatever, you know, and not asking your mom what you would like for lunch today, but um, being one of many. Uh, I mean, things that are, you know, daily, daily details that do change our lives and even change our memories. I mean, I think that the best memories we'd have from childhood was when, you know, your mom wouldn't do, would cook exactly what you love the most, you know, and it was just for you. Uh, so the, the being special in with the only within a family. With that, you know, at, seeing also that the Soviet Union changes this policy, this also raises a question, which is if an autocrat wants to regulate the family. Right. So one way or another in the short run, it's going to try to, to stop it uh, and to d destroy its independency. In the long run, it's going to, oh, no, no, sorry. I was joking. Right. Kidding. Uh, go back together. Please have more kids. Stay together. What is the attitude of a free state towards the family? So how do we realize that we are in a, in a, good, in a good place? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. In some ways, that's like the billion dollar question because I think a lot of countries are worried about their their birth rates, frankly, and then also just their their family culture today. Uh, From my perspective, I think there are really two things that states can do to help create conditions where families can thrive. I don't think you can really force thriving on people. I don't think you can force marriage on people. At least the Russian Orthodox Church didn't believe this. A lot of churches don't believe this. You can't force people to have children. You know, there are a lot of just issues. But in terms of creating conditions, economic liberty and religious liberty are very important. So I want to emphasize that in Soviet Russia, these two things were anathema. This was not part of the, this was just not even possible, right? Economic liberty and religious liberty are fundamentally opposed to sort of Marxist ideology that was king during this period. So I think that's a large reason why a lot of these pro-family policies failed as well. But why economic liberty? Because uh, this allows families to gather private property, which is a really important way for families to have independence and to pass on what they've built to future generations, right? That really important grandparent, parent, child, grandchild connection. And um, it also allows specifically women in in particular uh, to have more flexible work schedules. So not only can you provide for your family, which a lot of times will be necessary to have uh, just two parents working for market wages, but the more flexible, we know this from some, you know, gender economics research, the more flexible the work schedule for the woman, the better. Women just in general prefer to have flexibility to care for Um, friends, elderly relatives, and children. And so economic liberty is really related to this ability to choose, right, the the job that you would like and choose your own schedule um, that works best with your family. Why religious liberty? Uh, This, I think, really gets to culture. So it takes a lot uh, to have a thriving um, sort of culture in in society and and especially to um, have the support necessary for children just to pass on the knowledge you know, for um, just social support, emotional support, a lot of these other things that we need um, to be healthy, to live healthy lives. And really the church has always been sort of the nexus of this. This is where we learn to get along with people outside of our family groups. This is where we meet potential spouses. This, you know, perhaps this is where, you know, you learn about sort of loyalties beyond right, your family. And so this is another important force culturally in society that encourages people to have children There is good research also that the more young people are around other young people who have children, the more likely they are to start their own families. Um, And I've seen this in my own life. We go to a a parish, I'll I'll just mention it, Assumption Parish in Nashville, lots of crying babies. And it definitely makes it easier when you see people doing doing this, right? Raising a lot of children and, and enjoying it and smiling through it. And then you think, oh, maybe that's possible, right? Maybe I can also do this because they're able to do this, right? And I think that is part, it's very hard to study, right? You're not going to see a lot of like economic studies on exposure to children, although you might be able to measure it um, to a weak extent, but it basically just comes down to having role models. And I also think that it's very relevant, the part that I discovered or I was reminded, but I probably discovered reading your paper that has to do with inheritance and is this inheritance, they the ban on inheritance and this relevance of private property within the family, which also I think is something that maybe especially younger people fascinated by, you know, the Marxist ideals do not really think about that much, you know, like that then the fact the fruit of whatever you do is not yours and is not meant to stay with, within your family. I think that there is a risk that whenever we don't, you know, especially 
you know, the, the, the socialist thinking might, might sound very positive in many, many ways. But then, you know, we, we, we tried maybe to emphasize, we, we risk emphasizing only the positives and to not remember the cost, mm-hmm. the cost of it. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting thought. So in some sense, there's this idea that Marxist ideology wanted to make everyone like one big happy family, right? And you sort of hear this. Some thinkers, I think, presume that as an economic unit, the family is socialist, right? So, oh, it's, you know, to each according to their need and from each according to their ability within the family. But when you really think about it, that's not the case. For instance, we teach children chores. It's common to give allowances or to, you know, maybe between husband and wife, like, okay, here's money that you can spend on whatever you want. Like my, you know, my husband and I do this, like, okay, just go, you know, go have fun with this. But then with other amounts of money, we have to spend it, you know, in a certain way. And so there's this agreement on how to spend your resources, but it's not socialist, right? And in fact, if you had this idea of common property, you wouldn't be able to give any gifts. If you think about, you know, the act of giving requires that you own what you have first. So in a communist society, you would not have gift giving, right? Because because you don't have anything. And so there's this really interesting book that I that I um, definitely want to mention and encourage um, any of your listeners to look into. And it's uh, by Lauren Hall, and it's called Family as the Moderator of Politics. I believe that's the title. And she she shows throughout history how all these, you know, very romantic, and honestly, I understand, you know, why some of it is appealing, these appealing political ideas for utopia sort of like societies they ultimately fail when they um, come into contact with the institution of the family. The family keeps us moderate because we can't have crazy socialism because your children matter. You don't just love random children, right? You love your own children and that matters. You don't love random men. You love your own husband, right? And that matters, that type of thing. That's how we are built. But then also on the other extreme, we're dependent on one another. So crazy individualism, sort of radical individualism doesn't work in practice because babies are super dependent, right? You have, I, I didn't know this before. I learned this in the hospital after, or the, the birth center after I gave birth to my daughter. You have to feed a baby every two hours for this first couple months of their life. That's extreme dependence, right? Because we're these types of, of people just naturally, then you see a family sort of keeps societies from becoming too extreme. Yeah, they teach, as I say, they teach moderation. I would also say they teach love because there's nothing, you know, there's no bigger lesson than the fact that you're, you're required to love the ones that you end up with and you don't choose <laughs> them. And right. And, uh, and it's a, it's a great, it's a great lesson. Is that what's, that's what builds character. And again, that's something that it's not my original idea. Chesterton said it very well and yes. many others before him. Yeah. Um, well, Clara, I think I already enjoyed your, everyone enjoyed your company a lot with this episode. And I think that this is the perfect place where we can stop and just as we told our audience, we know you're coming. So we're looking forward to that in the spring and we will hear from you on, I think we have a topic, but do we want to say what it's going to be? Sure. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm currently doing a, a new project on the fertility gap. So I'm going to be discussing what the fertility gap is and why it differs between countries and hopefully U.S. states, if I can get that data. So, yeah, I really look forward to it. Wonderful. We look forward to that, too, and to having you here. So thank you very much for your time and keep riding on the family. We need that. I will. Thank you so much for your time, Mariana. I'll see you. Thank you.
Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this. We can continue our programming. And of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.